God's wrath is coming against humans. That's what this passage is about. God's judgment. And when I saw that Aaron had allocated this passage to me, I can tell you my first thought was not one of joy and thankfulness. I mean, it's not exactly a topic that people love to hear about. It's one of the most challenging passages in the Bible, not because it's difficult to understand, but because it's difficult to accept. I must admit, I wondered whether Aaron actually planned for this passage to come up while he was on paternity leave. But I know he's not like that. So I'm going to trust that God wants me to talk to you about this passage, about this topic, and I'm going to trust that God will bring good out of it. The Apostle Paul covers lots of ideas here, and we're not going to be able to touch on them in much detail right now. So please do come and speak to me afterwards if you've got some questions and want to work through things a bit more. So we're looking at the letter to the Romans, written by the Apostle Paul. And he starts his letter with some introductory comments, some greetings, and then he dramatically turns to this chilling idea, God's wrath is coming against humans. Have a look at verse 18 in your Bible. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. This actually links back to verse 17. We saw last week that the righteousness of God has been revealed in the gospel, which enables all who have faith to be saved. And so the reason why this righteousness needs to be revealed is because the wrath of God has already been revealed. All of humanity is unrighteous and wicked. We are incapable of making ourselves right with God. We are incapable of living an upright and holy life. And worse than that, God is angry at us for the lives that we live. Therefore, we need the gospel because it reveals a righteousness from God that is received by faith so that we can escape the wrath of God. Now before we get into this too far, I want to note three truths about God's wrath that I think will be helpful. And the first is to define it. And what does this word wrath actually mean? It conjures up images of a vengeful God who's sitting up in the clouds throwing thunderbolts down at people or who conjures up natural disasters just because he's having a grumpy day. However, God's wrath is not about random acts of violence. It's actually God's settled anger. The word settled is really important. See, human anger tends to be about uncontrolled rage. It's nearly always selfish and hurtful. But God's wrath is thoughtful, controlled, measured and always just. His wrath is his settled hatred of wickedness and injustice. His wrath is his settled hatred of evildoers and murderers. His wrath is his settled hatred of all that robs him of his glory. And when God reveals his wrath... He gives expression to this settled anger by sending judgment. Now, we may not think that doesn't sound too bad. You know, why shouldn't God punish wicked, godless people? But the sobering message from verse 19 right through to chapter 3, verse 20, is that God's wrath is against 
everyone. This is our second truth about God's wrath. As Aaron will show in the coming weeks, even people who consider themselves moral are under God's wrath. Even people who consider themselves religious are under God's wrath. Everyone falls within the big circle that's drawn by verse 18. One, chapter 1, verse 17 speaks of the promise of salvation. And Romans chapter 3 explains how this salvation is made possible. But the passages in between, we need to let the truths here hit home. Convict us of our failure before God. And finally, the third truth about God's wrath is that he must reveal it or he would not be just. Now, first of all, God must be angry at evil, otherwise God wouldn't be good. And secondly, God must act and reveal his settled anger, otherwise he wouldn't be just. And thirdly, God is our creator. He made us and so every wicked thought and deed is a personal attack on him. God must reveal his wrath. And so that is what he has done, that's what he is doing and it's what he will do. And so the rest of chapter 1 expands on why God's wrath is being revealed and how it is being revealed. So let's start with the first one and you'll see this point on your outlines. Why is God's wrath being revealed? Because of humanity's lies and idolatry. The first thing Paul argues is that humans suppress the truth of God. Paul mentions truth suppression in verse 18. And then in verse 25 he says that humans exchange the truth of God for a lie. This is not just truth in general, it's truth about God. But someone might argue that this could hardly be true of everyone. You know, surely there are some humans who have never heard anything about God. So how could they possibly reject him? Well, Paul argues that God reveals himself through creation. Check out verses 19 and 20. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Paul clearly says that everyone knows the truth about God because everyone lives in the world that God made. And while they don't see the invisible God, they do see signs of his invisible qualities. When I was a science student and an atheist, I grappled with this idea. You know, I thought that since we can't see God in the world, he can't possibly exist. You know, science explains how the world works and so God is unnecessary and irrelevant. But part of my journey to becoming a Christian involved understanding that science can't prove or disprove the existence of an invisible God. Because scientists, dis uh, scientists study the visible world that God has made and God won't be discovered visibly inside his world. It's not as if he's an old man with a beard in a mountain pulling levers and pushing buttons somewhere. You won't find God. Yet Paul does say that there is some evidence. The evidence of creation itself points to an invisible God. But what does that mean? Well, the very existence of the world suggests that there was something that brought it into existence. Our universe had a beginning and it's moving through stages towards an end. This suggests that there is an invisible force somehow involved in creating it and sustaining it. 
This points to the existence of a higher power, perhaps even a spiritual being. And Paul goes on to say that we can actually learn something about this being. We can understand that he has power and divinity. It's actually not super clear what he means. So here's my attempt. Verse 20 speaks of God's eternal power. It's eternal because it's separate to the universe. It existed before creation. And it's power because, well, that's what you need to create something. The fact that this world exists at all suggests that there was a great eternal power that brought it about. Now, while people might speak of the Big Bang, that's simply an admission that there had to be a power source. No one can deny this. As Christians, we just know that God is the source of that power. On a more local level, we know that God is the power behind all natural events. That's what keeps things ticking along. Paul also says we can see God's divine nature. This is about his divinity. God is a being who transcends this world. He's not a man like us who just happens to have a lot of power at his disposal. He is superior to us in every way. He is clever because he made the world to work. He is sovereign because he has made the world to work the way he wants. And he is wise because he's made the world habitable and appropriate for our needs. So we can know enough from the creation around us to believe that God is real, that he is powerful, and that he is divine. What Paul's teaching here is an idea known as general or natural revelation. But if God really does reveal himself through creation, then why do people reject him? Well, the frightening truth that Paul shares here is that this revelation is enough to condemn, but not to save. Verse 19 makes this bold assertion that God has made truths about himself plain to everyone. Yet people still reject him, and so they are without excuse. Check out verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. How is this even possible? I'm sure that if you tried, fairly easily you could find someone who'd say that they know nothing about God. We have two options then, don't we? Either Paul is wrong, perhaps he's just exaggerating about what people know, or perhaps that person is wrong. As difficult as it might be to accept, we need to go with the second one. Not because I think everyone does believe in God and they know lots about him and they just pretend that they don't. You know, when I identified as an atheist, it wasn't because I was pretending. Rather, Paul is saying that the truth is in there, yet they suppress it. They might not even be aware of it. This is because their thinking is futile, so they can't properly assess the evidence of God. And it's also because their heart is dark, and so at the, their very core they are unwilling and unable to accept God. Therefore, the failure is not on the part of God and his clarity, but on the part of humanity. And so, we are without excuse. Now, this might be hard for you to swallow, but think about it this way. While people may not be aware that they know God is real, on the final day, when they come face to face with him, they'll realize then that they are suppressing the truth all along. 
It's like when there's a buzzing noise in the background and you don't even notice it until someone mentions it and then you realize you knew it was there all along. And so general revelation is enough to condemn humans. But for humans to be saved, there needs to be special revelation. God needs to speak to his creatures so that we can have true knowledge restored. And God reveals himself in this way through the Bible. That's how I became a Christian. It wasn't by finding God through science. It wasn't through reasoning out the facts of salvation through logic, but rather finding God in the Bible. The first reason why God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against us is because we suppress what we know to be true about him. And the second reason is that we give our worship to created things. We turn from God to idols. This point will be a lot quicker because I think it's one we're probably more familiar with. Have a look at verses 22 and 23. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Despite our claims to be wise, we are actually morally corrupt. Rather than looking to God, we replace God with inferior substitutes. We have a need to worship and so when we reject God, we don't just leave a worship vacuum there, we fill it with something else. We look to idols. Paul speaks about images of humans or animals. He probably has in mind statues or objects meant to represent them. But idols don't have to be images. They are anything that we worship instead of worshipping God. It could be a job, a relationship, a hobby, a lifestyle. Ultimately, an idol is what we invest in rather than investing in God. But these substitutes are inferior to God. It's not necessarily that they're all bad in and of themselves, but compared to God, they're but shadows. Yet we turn away from the glory of God and the opportunity to be in his glorious presence. We reject his majesty and splendor. We reject his goodness and love. We reject his wisdom and power. Listen to how Paul describes it in verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. This means God is robbed of his eternal praise. By framing idol worship in terms of turning away from the Creator, Paul shows us that really we elevate things that God has made above God himself. How disgusting is that? Imagine if my wife, Tracy, made an amazing cake. And if you know her, it's not that hard to believe because she's a fantastic cook. And she gives me this cake and I decide to give all my attention and devotion to it. You know, I sat and just gazed lovingly, longingly at it. I spent all of my spare time with it. You would sit on the couch next to me. I wrote love poems and songs about it. I even slept on the kitchen bench next to the fridge so I could be close to it at night. Would that be a bit weird? Yes. But would that be wrong? Yes. And would that insult my wife? Absolutely. It would rob her of the love and praise that she deserves for something that she's made. We'll multiply that by a billion times and you can start to understand how we treat God. 
Now, maybe it's not with a cake. Maybe that's not the thing you would worship. But how about the attention you give to your physical appearance or your intellectual ability or your house or your music collection? Do you give thanks to God or do you fix all your attention on the things that God has given you? God has made a good and wonderful world. He deserves eternal praise for that. But rather than acknowledge God, we look to created things. Rather than worship God, we worship idols. And so our problem is not chiefly about morality, it's about devotion. No wonder God is revealing his wrath against the world. But how does he reveal his wrath? And how do we know that it's already being revealed and it's continuing today? This is what we turn to in our next main point, you'll see in your outlines. And the rest of Romans 1 reveals our big idea for today. This is the big idea for you to take home what this passage is about. God reveals his wrath to humans by giving them what they want. Three times in this passage, Paul writes that we exchange something good for something bad. Verse 23, the glory of God for images. Verse 25, the truth of God for a lie. Verse 26, natural God-given sexual relations for unnatural relations. Can you see then that what Paul is describing here in Romans 1 is not humans choosing between right and wrong, it's choosing between loving God and not loving God, obeying God and not obeying God. In each situation we choose something instead of God and by doing that we reject God. And how does he respond to this? God gives us over. God knows the deepest desires of our hearts and so he gives us over to them. Three times in this passage, Paul states that. In verse 24, God gives humans over to the sinful desires of their hearts. Verse 26, God gives humans over to shameful lusts. Verse 28, God gives humans over to a depraved mind. And it would be easier to think here that God simply withdraws his loving hand and he just allows bad things to happen. However, Paul is saying something slightly different. He's saying that God actively gives us over to our sinful desires. He doesn't just permit us to do what we want. He enables us to do what we want. One commentator says it's like we're in a boat on a river and God is holding us close to the shore where we'll be safe, but we constantly ask him to leave us alone. And perhaps we could say that God hands us over by just letting go of the boat. But really, what Paul is saying is that God pushes us out into the middle of the river so we're swept away. It's really hard to get your head around, isn't it? But you know, there are plenty of examples of this in the Bible. I've got some references there in the Connect card you can look up later. But a clear one is Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. Hopefully you know the story. Uh, Pharaoh enslaved God's people and he refused to let them go. He hardened his heart, even though God sent plague after plague after plague. And eventually, God himself hardened Pharaoh's heart. He actually gave Pharaoh what he wanted. And this meant that Pharaoh's judgment, when it came, it was certain and deserved. And so here in Romans 1, Paul is saying that God reveals his wrath by handing us over to our destructive thinking and our destructive deeds. 
What we're seeing here is that God reveals his wrath to humans by giving them what they want. So let's now explore two signs of this happening. The first sign is sexual immorality and the degrading of our bodies. And the second sign is depraved minds and the wrong treatment of each other. Now the way Paul presents these is that they are the evidence or result of God's wrath being revealed rather than the cause of God's wrath being revealed. Hopefully it become clear why this is the case as we explore them. So the first sign is about sexual immorality and the degrading of our bodies. Verse 24 says that God gives humanity their heart's desire. That might sound nice, except for the problem that the desires in our hearts are corrupted by sin. These desires don't lead to freedom and prosperity. Instead, they lead to impurity and slavery. And Paul says this sexual impurity leads to humans degrading their bodies with each other. In verse 26, we read about a specific example of God handing humans over to sexual immorality. Paul speaks of homosexuality. Let me read out verses 26 and 27. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. These are increasingly difficult words to hear and to understand in our society today. They are jarring for many people. And the sad fact is that those inside the church and those outside of the church either distort these words or misuse these words. Now I'm sorry, we don't have time to do this topic justice tonight. So again, I do invite you to come and speak to me if you've got questions or concerns. So right now, I just want to make four points. The first point is that homosexual activity was a common sin among the Gentiles that the Jews would judge them by. You know, Paul doesn't list it because it's the worst of all sins or the pinnacle of perversity. Rather, it's because it was a common sign used by the Jews to point to the Gentiles and show how far they had moved away from God. And I suspect that Paul lists this sin as a way to draw in any Jewish readers to get them off guard because he's preparing for chapter 2 when he'll expose their hypocrisy and their own self-righteousness. My second point is that homosexuality involves abandoning what is natural in how God designed humans. You know, some argue that Paul is speaking about those who go against their sexual orientation. And so he's condemning heterosexual people who have sex with people of the same gender. And so this would then mean that homosexual activity is natural and good for those with a homosexual orientation. This is not what Paul teaches here. It's not what the Bible teaches anywhere. What Paul is saying is that what's natural is for men and women to engage in sexual activity with people of the opposite gender. This is God's standard. and It's how he has made us. 
And so natural relations, that definition of what that is, is not determined by us and our experiences or our subjective feelings. It's determined by God and how he's made us. My third point is that homosexuality is just one example of the sexual immorality mentioned in verse 24. And it's just one of many sins listed in this passage. So please hear me clearly. On on the one hand, I don't want to downplay the seriousness of homosexual activity. It cannot be sanctified and turned into a God-honouring thing. But on the other hand, I don't want us to think that it's like the only sin or the only truly horrible sin or anything like that. I also don't want to imply that any sex with someone of the opposite gender is okay. You see, the answer is not heterosexuality. The answer is holy sexuality. It's actually going along with God's good design. He's given sex as a good gift to be enjoyed, but in the exclusive union of one man and one woman. But even in marriage there can be sexual immorality and the degrading of one another's bodies. Someone might pressure their spouse to engage in acts they're uncomfortable with. Someone might want to introduce pornography into the relationship. See, heterosexuality is not the answer. Holy sexuality, following God's good design. And the reason why we distort this is it's because of our idolatry. See, when we reject our Creator and the truth that He reveals, of course we'll be confused, disorientated and misdirected in our behaviour, particularly when it comes to sex. See, Paul says that we worship the physical rather than the spiritual, and so according to verse 24, we're getting what we deserve when we degrade our physical bodies. My fourth point, I want to acknowledge that this is a real pastoral issue. There are many Christians who experience same-sex attraction and these verses have been used to demonise and ostracise them. If you or people you love are wrestling with these desires while also trying to be faithful to Jesus, then please know that the situation is not hopeless. Also know that everyone battles with disordered desires. So if you'd like support in this area, you'd like to talk about it some more, then please get in touch with me or a mature Christian that you trust. There's some heavy stuff in there. We're going to move on now and look at the second sign of God's wrath. The second sign of God's wrath being revealed is that he hands us over to depraved minds and this leads to wrong treatment of each other. Our minds are corrupted because we reject God. In verses 19 and 21, Paul talks about people knowing God. That seems to be more said information, impersonal knowledge about him. But here in verse 28, it's about intimate, relational knowledge of God. What Paul is describing here is the consequence of rejecting God and rejecting being in relationship with him. When we don't listen to the creator, then we don't know how to live well in his creation. Our minds become at odds with him and our minds become at odds with reality. And so we we make bad choices and we approve of bad things. And this is because God hands us over to that wrong thinking. God reveals his wrath to humans by giving them what they want. Just listen to the list of vices that Paul gives us in verses 29 to 31. 
They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. I think we can all find something in there that would convict us. And do you notice that murder and gossip are both listed? There's no hierarchy here. These are all things that God condemns. And they are all a sign of God's wrath upon this world. You know, we love to gossip about people and slander them. And so God gives us over to that. He gives us over to envy and arrogance. He gives us over to our desires to hurt other people and to think with a depraved mind. Paul describes our minds as inventing ways of doing evil. We come up with new things to do. In the end, the human who rejects God becomes senseless, faithless, heartless and ruthless. There are no redeeming qualities by which God can call them good people. And one last sign that Paul shares of a depraved mind is found in verse 32. Check it out. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Paul speaks here of how humans suppress their God-given conscience. And this doesn't just result in doing wrong things, but actually approving of others who do wrong things. This is what happens when we encourage others to sin or we take pleasure in their sin. This even includes what we might watch other people do, what we might listen to other people doing. Humans approve of sin in so many ways, in so many actions. And whether whether humans are even aware of it or not, that's the result of a depraved mind. God's wrath has already been revealed against our world by giving humans what they want. And two signs that Paul lists are sexual perversity and the wrong treatment of other people. And so the fallenness of our world is a sign that we have rejected God and that his wrath is already upon us. And the chilling thought is that this is just a foretaste of what is yet to come. This is a hard and challenging passage. There are a lot of difficult truths in here to get our heads around. A lot of big ideas to wrestle with. And so I think for many of us, the relevance this passage has is that it just pushes us to correct our thinking about God and the world and ourselves. So you might need to just spend time thinking through these ideas. But I do want to touch on two specific truths for living in a world that is under God's wrath. The first is there's actually a way to escape God's wrath, to not be under it anymore. But it's only those who trust in the gospel that are not under God's wrath. You know, I appreciate that while I've tried to speak in general terms, you know, mentioning humanity and they, I've also said us and we at points. So I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm going to say next. Listen up. Verse 18 condemns all humans. 
and verses 19 to 32 give some reasons for that condemnation and some signs of that condemnation. Let's not forget that verse 18 follows from verses 16 and 17, which speak of the power of the gospel to save us from God's wrath. Anyone and everyone who trusts in Jesus is no longer under God's wrath, even today. In fact, Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1 that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is because Jesus was condemned on the cross in our place as God's wrath was poured out on him. He died to satisfy God's just anger and he rose to new life not only to show that he had beaten sin, that he had succeeded, but so he can offer us everlasting life as well. He will offer that to everyone who comes to him in faith. And so if you find yourself thinking or acting like the descriptions in this passage, then what do you do? Well, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then the response is clear. See, the problem is not about behaviour, but about attitude towards God. You must repent. What that means is to turn away from thinking and acting that rejects God. You must say sorry to God. You must put your trust in Jesus. You have to put your faith in him. And if you do that, if you turn and believe in Jesus, then from that moment you will no longer be under God's wrath. If this is you, if this is where you're at today, then we'd love to help you work through this. If you're already a follower of Jesus, and let's say you find that some of these verses describe you, then first of all, be reassured you are not under God's condemnation. You are not under God's wrath. While it is true that some of these behaviours are evidence of God's wrath, when they show up in Christians, they remind us that we still live in a world under God's judgement. They remind us that We are saved not because we've fixed our lives up and we're now perfect in how we live. We're saved because we trust in Jesus. They remind us that we are still works in progress. And so if you see these things in your own life, please do not think that these are a sign that you've come back under God's wrath, that you have fallen away, that you have lost your salvation. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what do we do then with the struggles we face? Well, we need the second truth for living in a world under God's wrath. Here it is. Only God can change futile minds and darkened hearts. This gives hope to Christians. When you struggle with temptation, when you are frustrated at the futility of your thoughts, when your heart feels cold and dark, then remember... You don't need to try harder to be a good person. You need God to change you. And he promises to do that. Keep praying to him, asking him to change you. You Paul says later in Romans 12 that we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And it's God who does that renewing. So pray to your Father in heaven and ask him to keep working in you by his spirit. The situation is not hopeless. And this also gives hope to those who aren't believers. Perhaps you're here today and you've felt convicted by this passage, but then you'd feel it'd be impossible to turn your life around. 
How could you change the way you think and live? Well, God will actually help you with that. You just come to him in repentance and faith. You turn back to him and trust in him. Turn away from your idols and your inferior God substitutes and turn to God instead. He will help you. And finally, this truth reminds us that the best way to really help our society, to help our world, is to preach the good news about Jesus. Because no amount of seeking justice and change in our community will transform people's hearts and minds. Only the gospel will do that. Those things are good to do as a way to love others, to show that we are different, to show that Christ has redeemed us and we want to live differently in the world. But those things won't save people. And so we have to make sure that we at least share the good news about Jesus. So that's Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. And maybe you won't thank me for preaching those verses. You may feel you have more questions than answers now. So please do speak to me or someone else. Work through these things. Keep reflecting on these truths. God reveals his wrath to humans by giving them what they want. But he also reveals his righteousness. He reveals salvation through Jesus. And the offer is there for anyone who will come to Jesus in faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by this passage because it reminds us that the world deserves your wrath. We don't like the idea of a wrathful God, at least not when that wrath is directed towards us or people we care about. So please humble us and help us to accept that this world is in trouble and it's our fault, humanity's fault, not yours. You have simply given humanity what they wanted. I pray for those that don't know you that you would open their hearts and minds to the truth. I pray for those who do know you that you would help them to rest assured that you have saved them. And I pray that all of us will come away with a greater sense of your majesty and holiness and of our weakness and our neediness. Amen.